you ready, eager young space cadet? Meep, meep. I call a pussy Hello and welcome to Of Course You Realize This Means Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Graves, and it is my pleasure and privilege to bring to you the author of Anvils, Mallets, and Dynamite, the unauthorized biography of the Looney Tunes. This is a wonderful book that is on store shelves right now, and I am going to talk to the author and we're going to dive deep into the history and the, the facts and what makes these shorts so wonderful and stand the test of time. Please welcome Jamie Weinman to the podcast. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Hi, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. It is my pleasure to have you on and talk about these wonderful shorts and your book, which is one of the best resources I've ever read on the subject. You go in depth in so many little facets of Warner Brothers animation and the start of Termite Terrace, the history, the creatives, all of the all of the wonderful like business of the of the shorts, of the cartoons, and what made that such a huge legacy to uphold. And I feel that they're upholding it right now in a really great way. Um, but let's start from the beginning. Um, this book starts with the premise of why are the Looney Tunes funny? The theme of this book is so captivating. Um, what made you start there and what was it like to dive into this subject? Well, one reason I wanted to start with the question of what makes them funny is just the, the mystery of it. Why is it that these cartoons um, have held up so well over so many years to the point that when we were children, we would watch them and not care how old they were and find them just as funny uh, as they were when they first came out. Uh, with a lot of comedy, you sort of have to put yourself in the right frame of mind or, or, or tell people to, um, you know, to, to get into it or overlook the different style. And there's some, there, there are some types of comedy that seem to, uh, to be, to require almost no work at all to enjoy and um and yeah. the classic looney tunes are among them and also i wanted to uh start the the book with something that was fun rather than starting at the very beginning what because it took um of course it took it took the warner brothers cartoon studio quite a long time to arrive at their style so it, it, it i thought it would be better to start with um the the question of what makes Looney Tunes funny and talking about a classic Looney Tunes cartoon like uh, a, a Tweety's first cartoon, A Tale of Two Kitties, and then go into Bosco and uh, harmonizing and all the uh, all the growing pains that it took for 10 years to get to uh, what we think of as the Looney Tunes comedy style. Yeah, and I love how you do that. You integrate the anatomy of a cartoon in multiple sections of this book. So that way we get a break from just the history and you go into a short and you just document like everything that makes this short work and why it's funny. Like it just answers that question time and time again. And I love your perspective on these shorts. And you, you just mentioned A Tale of Two Kitties. That's uh, one of the ones that is a parody short. Um, so it took Abbott and Costello and that whole formula. It created who we know as Tweety Bird and these two other cats um, <laughs> that are trying to get uh, Tweety Bird out of his nest and, and have him for lunch. Um, and they call them Babbitt and Catstello. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned something I've never heard before, which is the Weird Owl effect. Uh, do you care to explain that? Uh, I, I got it from TV tropes, I think. Uh, so the, uh, the Weird Al effect is when the parody outlives the original. So mm. people who grew up, who listened to uh, Weird Al Yankovic or uh, or some other song parodist might not be familiar with the song they're parodying because maybe it, it was only popular for a year or two, and they'll uh, and so they will know the parody better than the original. 
And that happened a lot with uh, Looney Tunes because the um, the writers and directors of the cartoons leaned very heavily on um, on borrowing from other comedy and particularly radio comedy and later television comedy. And some of the things they are parodying um, remained well known for a long time. Abbott and Costello, I think, there are quite still quite well known. Other things are not so well known. So. Uh, Tweety is one of several characters who's sort of based on this character from the Red Skelton show, the mean little kid, who is this uh, th this kid who does horrible things while talking baby talk about how cute he is. And that's uh, where the um, contradiction comes in. The, 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 this, this horrible person pretend, uh, who, who's pretending to be a cute little innocent. And uh, of course, Red Skelton... I think is only a name now I, and his radio show is largely forgotten, but car cartoon, uh, cartoons were constantly ripping off his radio show. I don't really know why. Um, and, um, and so that's the, that, that's the effect of something that becomes funny, completely detached from its parody source. And uh, we, we don't, uh, as people will testify, you don't really need to know, uh, Baby Snooks or uh, Duffy's Tavern or any uh, or, or any of the many things that are um, uh, turned into Warner Brothers cartoons, uh, as long as you have the basic premise that makes sense, which is cats trying to eat bird. Uh, it doesn't really matter if you know who the cats and the bird are based on. Yeah, and that is such a really great way to put it. I am a huge Weird Al fan, and I never realized how many of his songs that stick with me, even far beyond the originals. And I love the fact that you were able to find that comparison, and it works so well. I, I feel like the Looney Tunes do stand on their own beyond their source material or, or what inspired the the comedy behind it. Um, so absolutely, that that is such a, a great find um, in your research and... Um, I, 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 you know, the, the fact that Tweety is celebrating his 80th anniversary and he's still as popular as he's ever been is remarkable to me. Um, I also love how, and, and Tweety is one of those characters that while he did go through changes and evolutions over time, um, he pretty much stayed the same from whenever he was, uh, first introduced into the franchise. And I just, you know, time and time again, the Looney Tunes have shown us that great characters can come out of either parody or, you know, originality in their final or in a, a close to their final form in their first appearance, which is just incredible. Um, and Tweety's one of those. In, in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, they, uh, Tweety's appearance involves him doing a gag he did in his very first cartoon, A Tale of Two Kitties, where Someone is hanging by a wire from a, uh, by their fingers from a wire, mm -hmm. and Tweety uh, picks up, you know, detaches one finger after another by saying, you know, "This little piggy, this little piggy uh, went to market. This little piggy stayed home, and so on until until the poor sap falls to uh, to, to the ground." Right, and that was sort of. Um, in some ways, getting him back to the rougher roots uh, he had in his original cartoon because he did, as time went on, become a little nicer and a little more genuinely innocent. But it also showed that uh, you could, uh, that how fully formed he was with that, you know, with, with uh, a, a gag that could be repeated many years later and everyone would think it was in character for Tweety. Of course, his catchphrase, I taught, I taught, I taught, putty tat is completely intact in his first appearance. So there were changes, but uh, what we see in Warner Brothers cartoons that is that if something catches on with the audience, if it got a laugh from theater goers, they would keep doing it and doing it. And so um, we will often see something from the very first cartoon that catches on and then they just keep doing it until they're told to stop. <laughs> Thankfully so. Uh, because those gags do still work. And yeah, it, it's intrinsic to his legacy that he says, I taught, I taught, putty tat, and that he had those uh, those specific gags, um, you know, whether it be the wire hanging gag and, the, and taking the fingers off um, or pulling a mallet out from underneath nothing. <laughs> he's just, yeah, he, he's just super great with, uh, with 
the gag work and, and with the characterization um, that they gave him. And I, I it's indelible. Um, I, I just love this character so much. Um, another character I love so much is Bugs Bunny. And uh, we haven't talked about him yet. And he's a big part of your book. Uh, I believe he has a couple of, um, obviously you have these anatomy of a cartoon segments. Uh, so he has one of those. And then also there's a section, uh, an entire chapter devoted to Bugs Bunny. Um, and he pops up, you know, again and again, as he should. And um, so he's had a numerous amount of artists tackle the antics, tackle the personality. Um, who would you say had the biggest input as far as making him the lead of the Looney Tunes? I would definitely say Tex Avery. Um, as my chapter on bugs, uh, the, you know, the evolution of bugs um, um, meant, uh, goes into the creation of Bugs Bunny was sort of a collective effort on the part of the studio. Many different directors handled this character, this rabbit character that they wanted to make into their new star. And so um, you have Ben Hardaway who, who directed um, his first, his first sort of prototype appearance, Sporky's Hair Hunt, and his nickname Bugs eventually attached to the character because he was known as Bugs' Bunny. And um, and you have other um, directors like who made cartoons with, with something like Bugs. Chuck Jones made a couple of cartoons with the sort of prototype Bugs and Elmer Fudd. Um, and then out, out of all these cartoons, Tex Avery came uh, was then made a wild hair in 1940, which um, introduced uh, a number of it, it used the same rabbit and also Elmer Fudd and in uh, a hunting uh, in the basic plot of Elmer goes out hunting meets this rabbit the rabbit screws with him every possible way and finally drives Elmer crazy um, and um, so. What Avery did was he took everything that had been done with these characters up to that point and and intro and coalesced them into something that could be a viable formula. Uh, so he uh, his version of Bugs introduced uh, you know a, a sort of something close to though not quite um, uh, exactly the final design. It was the cartoon where Mel Blanc decided finally. Uh, this hit on the, the voice he should have and the, and the accent he should have, the, the famous, you know, New York accent that you can't quite place in any part of New York. So he, he would say, Mel Blanc would say that it's a combination of Brooklyn and the Bronx. Uh, and um, and it was, of course, the cartoon that introduced What's Up Doc, which is, uh, I think, uh, pretty well uh, known to be Tex Avery's idea. He would sometimes use the term Doc in other contexts in his cartoons and he claimed it was just something he, he uh, people had said to each other back in Texas and um, everything about that cartoon is the prototype for every other Bugs Bunny cartoon to come so much so that uh, 10 years later when Chuck Jones made the first um, uh, cartoon teaming up Bugs and Daffy it starts out with Elmer Fudd uh, walking, uh, uh, hunting in exactly the same way as in a wild hare, saying the same line to the audience, Shh, be very, be very quiet, I'm hunting rabbits. And Carl Stalling, the composer, even uses the exact same music he used in that scene in a wild hare. That's the, that, uh, that's almost the closest thing you get to a continuity reference in Warner Brothers cartoons, uh, because everyone you know, to, to a certain extent, every Bugs Bunny cartoon after 1940 is sort of a remake of a wild hair. It's, uh, <laughs> that, uh, so Tex Avery was not the sole creator of Bugs Bunny. Everyone uh, contributed and everybody got a lot less money for their effort than they should, they, they should have been entitled to. But if there is someone who, who made Bugs what he is, it's, uh, it's Tex Avery, who I think is the the yeah I don't use the term genius lightly. Um, so of all the all the Warner Brothers cartoons are great. Uh, cartoon directors are skilled. Some of them are are really great. But I think Tex Avery is sort of the visionary, the the one who saw something other people couldn't see and and taught the uh, everyone how to how to see things his way. And so even though he left the studio quite early, his stamp is all over the studio until the end of time. Absolutely. And so much so that there's even a reference to Tex Avery in the Looney Tunes cartoon shorts, uh, which debuted in 2020. 
And there's a cement gag where um, the, you know, Porky's trying to build a statue in using cement and um, the, uh, the statue comes up uh, as Daffy's pranking him as uh, Tex Avery holding Daffy's hand, uh, which is an homage to Walt Disney at Disneyland uh, holding Mickey's hand. And right. uh, uh, they couldn't have chose a better founder for that character yeah. or for, you know, for any of the characters. Yeah. The only other alternative would be Leon Schlesinger and I don't think who the producer, and I don't think even he would, have, I don't think he would have you know, considered himself to be a creative contributor the way Walt Disney was. He's just, he was just the producer of everyone. Uh, the, he was not a creative producer, Tex eight. So people were not looking to Leon Schlesinger to learn what they should, what kind of cartoon that they should be making. But instead, Chuck Jones and Bob Clampett, who both worked for Avery as animators, looked to him to, 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 for their idea of what a cartoon should be. I'm a huge fan of Tex Avery, and I followed his career after Looney Tunes, uh, the, the short-lived career of Looney Tunes uh, with him involved. And then over at MGM, whenever he did the Tom and Jerry's and, you know, his own spin on things. And yeah, I mean, he didn't create Tom and Jerry either. But again, like Hannah, Hannah and Barbera, who did do the Tom and Jerry, they were openly influenced by his work. Uh, and they, you know, they, 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 are, they, they were very um, clear that, that he taught them a lot of what they knew about, about how to be more violent and funnier. We could all be more violent and funnier. <laughs> so another director and, and somebody that was definitely in the departments over at Warner Brothers during this time was Robert McKimson. Um, he also directed a handful of Bugs Bunny shorts, but he also uh, was instrumental in pairing Foghorn Leghorn with Barnyard Dog and Henry Hawk and creating these rivalries. Um, can you speak on this and which other rivals illustrate a character's relationship in the franchise? I think um, it's it, it, Foghorn Leghorn is a bit unique because it, it was originally intended as more of a hunting idea with the, with the chicken hawk trying to catch chicken, but it was so convoluted that the you know the, this tiny chicken hawk trying to catch an, an enormous chi chicken you know larger than a man. That eventually it, it, it turned into more of a rivalry thing. So the, uh, it, it, it started to play up. Henry was phased out or became less of a threat. And it became a, more about the rivalry between Foghorn Leghorn and the dog and the, 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 the pranks they play on each other and the mind games they play on each other and just their attempts to, I guess, find something to to lighten up their, their boring lives as farmyard animals. So they... Um, the Foghorn Leghorn cartoons, which I talked about in a, in a whole chapter, because I, I know that Foghorn Leghorn is very popular, but hasn't been that much covered in books about animation. Uh, it, it's a bit, a little more sitcom-y, I think, than, uh, than the other um, Warner Brothers series, because uh, you will notice that Bugs or Daffy or Porky can live at any time, in any place, anywhere, um, and... There aren't a lot of cartoons like that with Foghorn Leghorn changing the setting. He's almost always on a farm and uh, and uh, and having the, that rivalry with the dog. And so it was, I think, in some ways, uh, an attempt to take some of the formula of sitcom, which, of course, uh, you know, radio had popularized and apply it. Or uh, apply it to cartoons, this idea that you have two character, uh, two or more characters in the same place every time uh, um, uh, uh, playing out these endless rivalries and petty bickering and, um, and, uh, and one-upmanship. And there are a few other Warner Brothers series that, that go into uh, this a bit, like you know, obviously the three cartoons with Bugs, Daffy, and Elmer uh, is, uh, create this dynamic with Bugs and, and Daffy who aren't really trying to kill each other, or although they don't mind killing each other. But they're uh, they're just trying. They're just sort of friendly rivals who are trying to one up each other. Uh, but I think that's a bit different from the standard Warner Brothers plot, which is character A wants to eat or shoot or or, or shoot and eat character B. So uh, the um, so I think that's what gives the Foghorn Leghorn series some of its popularity. I think it's just a little different. It's just different enough from the other cartoons that. 
if once you got used to it as a kid, you sort of looked forward to it as a as a break as or as a change of pace. The, it helped give variety to these um, half hour or hour long cartoon television compilations of cartoons that, frankly, were not meant to be watched more than one at a time. Yeah. As you were talking, I was also thinking of a couple Sylvester cartoons that um, he had a rivalry with another alley cat as they were trying to capture Tweety. And yes. those that entire formula was just transposed into the city. <laughs> That's, you know, that, that was a favorite plot of um, Warren Foster, who was the writer who created Tweety with with director Bob Clampett. Uh, so that started, that formula starts in uh, Clampett's last, uh, Clampett's last Tweety cartoon, uh, A Gruesome Twosome, where there are these two cats who are just spend the first three minutes of the cartoon just beating the crap out of each other. And then uh, the, um, the, the, the lady cat they both want says that she'll date whichever one of them can bring her back a, a bird. So they spend the rest of the cartoon trying to catch Tweety, teaming up against each other, teaming with, with each other, and eventually, of course, getting destroyed by Tweety both at the same time. Uh, and so there are a few other cartoons that use this formula. I think most of them written by Foster. Um, one of my favorite of all the Tweety cartoons is, um, and, and as, as I say in the, the book, it's hard to remember the titles because the titles often have nothing to do with the plot. Yes. It's it uh, Putty Tat Trouble, which is this cartoon, a wonderful cartoon from 1951, where sort of as, as a bit of variety, instead of so just Sylvester chasing Tweety, Sylvester and this orange cat are both trying to chase Tweety. And that, that, that creates so much more of an interesting dynamic because instead of, uh, you know, Tweety hurts them, but they hurt each other or they, 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 they try to um, outwit each other and fail badly. And it's just, um, uh, I, I, I sometimes wish there had been more cartoons like that in the series, um, if, if only because it, uh, it it's such a welcome change of pace, but maybe maybe they, the creators were smart enough to know that what makes something like that work is that it's a change of pace. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I would I would normally assume that uh, Fritz Freeling and Warren Foster know more about what makes a good cartoon than I do. So it's... Uh... <laughs> totally. And speaking of a change of pace, we have an entire chapter dedicated to Daffy 2.0, which yeah. is Chuck Jones's handling of Daffy Duck and making him that rival for Bugs Bunny in the Hunter trilogy that you're referring to. Um, what was it about this new evolution that made Daffy uh, not succumb to the same legacy that Porky has, um, that he's almost forgotten? Well, I, my, it's hard to know exactly why they Daffy was changed because there's never been really any clear um, data on how popular he was. He certainly was not as popular as Bugs Bunny, but he must have been somewhat popular to keep starring in his own cartoons until the 60s. But it's clear that uh, by the late 40s, the kind of character he was created as, is, you know, the bounding screwball wild man who just, you know, who, who's so dangerously insane that, uh, that you just have to get out of the way. That type of character was on the way out. People think of Bob Clampett as the director most associated with the crazy Daffy. But if you look at his last Daffy cartoon and maybe his best Daffy cartoon, uh, the great piggy bank robbery, the, the, you know, Duck Twacy cartoon, mm -hmm. Daffy isn't like that at all. Even, you know, he's not, he, he's just, he's not crazy. He's just a regular guy and, uh, and uh, who dreams he's, he's Dick Tracy. And a couple of years before that, you had drafty Daffy, where Daffy is this horrible, you know, cringing coward who's, who spends the whole cartoon trying to dodge the draft and kill the, uh, the the little man from the draft board, which is such a subversive thing to do during the middle of World War II. But uh, you know, only I think only Bob Clampett could have gotten away with that. But the point is that that people did not want to see Daffy uh, be you know a bounding wild uh, you know wild screwy character anymore. And so what can you do with him if he's not crazy? And the answer is sort of not all that much, or at least until Chuck Jones and his writer, Mike Maltese, started to get the idea of first of sort of, uh, of 
with the Scarlet Pumpernickel, they hit on the idea of sort of continuing what the Dick, Dick Tracy cartoon started and having Daffy imagine he's some kind of, uh, you know, fictional hero. And that, that became the template for Drip Along Daffy, where he's a Western hero. Deduce, you say, where he's Sherlock Holmes. Um, and then, of course, Robin Hood Daffy. And, but uh, the other thing they did was, for the first time ever, team him up with Bugs Bunny, which, which is unusual. The, Bugs Bunny had not usually had guest stars in his cartoons. And in fact, except for, you know, surprise cameos or little jokes, characters did not usually uh, appear in each other's cartoons. Porky and Daffy appeared together because Daffy was created for a Porky cartoon, but that's a, that was about it. Um, and what happened with Rabbit Fire, with, uh, the first of the hunting uh, trilogy with... Um, uh, Bugs, Daffy, and Elmer is that Daffy intrudes himself into a normal Bugs and Elmer cartoon, really almost identical and set up to a wild hare, except that Daffy is in it. And that, then it becomes sorry, then it becomes a, a matter of instead of Bugs just outwitting Elmer, which is kind of easy to do, he he outwits both Daffy and Elmer, um, playing on Elmer's stupidity and Daffy's tendency to get angry and not think. So the famous duck season, rabbit season thing, where, where Bugs plays on the fact that he knows that Daffy will always say the opposite of what he, whatever Bugs says. Um, you know, so duck season, rabbit season, rabbit season, duck season. That's the, it's, it's, Daffy's just too angry and too, um, you know, and, and too excited to to think about what he says. He just, uh, and that's that's true of most of us. I think we can identify with that because a lot of us speak without thinking. So, yeah. um, so what happened was that this this created a whole new world for Daffy uh, to play in. Uh, suddenly, in, uh, now that he's no longer a screwball, what can he be? Well, he's he's you know, the sort of the closest thing to a regular guy in, um, in, in, in cartoons. He's this guy who wants to be a success, but can never quite pull it off. He want he's, he's smart, but he's not as smart as Bugs Bunny. And, uh, and yet he keeps trying to outwit Bugs Bunny and failing. So, um, Chuck Jones and Mike Maltese, but especially Jones, I think fell in love with this idea of Daffy as this lovable failure who just, you know, who, who just exemplifies the, the person who would like to be Bugs Bunny, but can't. And that became, uh, you know, sort of his default characterization for a long time, even though that itself, as I say in the book, that itself eventually became stale. And, um, and, uh, and that, I think, held back Daffy to a certain extent because he was never allowed to be changed again the way Chuck Jones was allowed to change him back in the 50s. You know, that's such a rare insight into, you know, looking at what the past brought us, but also like what could have been if certain things were changed. And, you know, having this podcast and going back through the, the classics, I'm always having those thoughts. And, you know, like you saying that it was a really unique idea to have Bugs Bunny have this co-star in Daffy. And that changed the dynamic entirely of this character. I keep waiting for Bugs and Tweety to have their own short together. Like, what would yeah. that be? Like, how would Tweety change? And, yeah. you know. It, it's one of many things, like, there's always a sort of been a sort of, you know, conservatism to the way the characters have been treated, certainly ever since at least the late 50s and definitely since the original studio broke up. This thing where... They're, the character is marketed as being this, and they have to be like this forever. And, uh, and, and you know that goes on even to a certain extent today. But sometimes you really need to do it to shake things up. So um, on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the original um, scene with you know teaming Daffy and Donald, they asked Chuck Jones to come up with something, and it was uh, he submitted kind of an old fashioned. Uh, fairly standard idea about uh, about Daffy being jealous of Donald or whatever. So it's, it's, I think I think it was closer to a typical Bugs and Daffy thing. And the the version that wound up in the film, which was created by other uh, by other people, um, was something that was a bit, uh, you know, uh, I guess, closer to Daffy's, uh, you know, crazy roots without being 
uh, you compl- without being a pastiche of that. Uh, so, it, and it was, it, it, it was funnier because it was something we hadn't seen Daffy do in a long time. And yeah. that, uh, and I think the, the question, the question about any of these characters is, can we surprise the audience? Can we, uh, can we give them something they haven't seen in a while? And uh, that was what that scene did uh, for Daffy. But I think too few scenes have been able to do for the character. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I wish that there was, you know, more time with the the original creators and these characters. I wish there was more time with them. Um, But, you know, that will be lost to history as we know how that happened. And they had to go their separate ways. Um, This book, though, documents some of the best moments of those years. And you have these archival sketches in between the book and the the sketches instantly sent me to either the shorts that they are representing or just looking at this raw pen like penmanship of like you know what a bug sketch was like um you know for bully for bugs and like you know you have you have so many great choices in here um and what what about those sketches uh, were nostalgic to you or which ones uh, stood out to you of like, oh, that's going in my book? Oh, that's so cool. Well, I, I mean, I really love the Yosemite Sam one uh, because it's I, it's one of those ones where I, I know exactly which cartoon it's from and which anime, even which animator it's from. It's uh, from a cartoon called um, Wild and Woolly Hair from 1959. And it looks like it's at least some of the drawings at least look like the style of Virgil Ross, who was one of the top animators of the studio for many, many years. He animated on a wild hair for Tex Avery. He animated, and then he animated for Bob Clampett and then for, for Frizz Freeling almost to the end of the studio. So, and he, yeah, the, the, I don't talk a lot about this in the book because it's, I'm not as good at other people as, at uh, identifying animators' individual styles, but part of the fun of, of watching the cartoons is being aware that the characters do change from from shot to shot because different animators take over and they have their own styles. That's something that I think is very special to the hand-drawn kind of animation because while uh, obviously CGI animators have their own personal styles too, the drawing, the, the actual drawing of the character cannot change quite as much as it does in hand-drawn. So seeing, oh yeah, that's Chuck Jones's drawing or that's, um, or, or that's Virgil Ross or that's Holly Pratt or whoever. It, it's, um, it, it just makes me feel like I'm communing with that artist or uh, these, these drawings were created by people who are, like like most people dead now, but they live again through these drawings, and that's uh, you know that's part of the magic of art. Absolutely, it is so magical because um, the, these illustrations just take you back to the first time you saw it, and it's so raw, but also so wonderful. Um, yeah, and uh, we we have so many creators to thank, um, but especially Frizz Freeling, um, who had this gift for softening abrasive characters as demonstrated with Tweety and um, taken from Bob Clampett and, you know, given to, uh, I want to say granny. Cause I think it was Frizz Freeling who introduced the whole granny and Tweety dynamic. Yes, he was. It was in 1950 where, uh, yeah, the, her first appearance was in a Tweety Sylvester cartoon, 1950. Yeah. Uh, so what made him the perfect creative voice behind Speedy Gonzalez? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily the perfect because I don't think the Speedy Gonzalez series represents his very best work. Not that it's, you know, some of the cartoons are funny and, and Speedy's first cartoon won an Oscar, though um, that's not always proof that it's the best cartoon of the year. But uh, they, what, what, what happened with um, Freeling by the 50s was, I think, clearly the studio's top director. He, was, he won the most Oscars. He uh, he was always the last to be laid off, and in fact, continue, uh, when the, when the original studio was closed down, he he just stayed on there and, and re, you know re- rebooted it as the Patty Freeling Enterprises and continued to make cartoons on a lower budget for Warner Brothers distribution. And so, um, what happened was that uh, I believe wh- there was a period when 
the, uh, when most of the staff was laid off in the 50s, the so-called 3D shutdown when Jack Warner shut down animation until that he could figure out if they was going to have to convert all of the films to 3D. Then when, when they decided they wouldn't, they just they hired back everyone else. And um, But Freeling, I believe, was still there or at least was, was there, was laid off less than the others. And uh, during this period, I, I think um, someone must have brought to his attention the this character that Bob McKimson had created in a cartoon called Cat Tales for Two, which was um, uh, kind of similar to the setup of A Tale of Two Kitties, except that the mouse was uh, Speedy Gonzalez, the fastest mouse in all Mexico. And the cats were based on um, George and Lenny from George, John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, because that is the most popular book for any cartoon writer. As you know, the, the George and Lenny are just in in like referred to or parodied in just about every cartoon uh, imaginable. So, yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, so Freeling took this character and I, somebody, he or someone must have realized that they could do something with him, but he was kind of a, you know, racist caricature. And, um, and also it, the, the, uh, the, the George and Lenny thing, I think we're not very good adversaries. So um, Freeling, and his writer, Warren Foster, and his designer, Holly Pratt, sort of went to work on this guy. They made him, you know, look, you know, look really nice and handsome, gave him, you know, this beautiful suit that always made him stand out as having the best taste in clothes of any character in the in the cartoon. Um, and um, and they made him kind of a hero for oppressed uh, Mexican mice. So the, the premise of that, that cartoon that won the Oscar is that the... Um, the mice are being, uh, are, you know, are trying to get into a cheese factory, which is guarded by Sylvester, the uh, the, the American, um, you know, the, the American guard, border guard cat, and so they they, they ask Speedy Gonzalez to come and and use his super speed to get their cheese, and just the rest of the cartoon is just Speedy trying to catch uh, Sylvester trying to catch this mouse and. and you know, the poor guy, if he couldn't catch Tweety, how is he going to, to, to catch a mouse with super speed? I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> the it, odds it, are against him. Yes. So what Reeling came up with there was this formula where um, you, you had, you know, Speedy was this sort of noble hero and, but with flaw, you know, with, with, with a taste, you know, with some flaws like, you know, being, you know, being too much of a, uh, playing around with too many women and stealing people's girlfriends and so on. But uh, he's, uh, you know, he generally a, a guy who's on the side of justice. And um, and that sort that eventually made him very popular worldwide and including famously popular in Mexico, um, where the the dubbing presumably was a little less uh, over the top than Mel Blanc's, uh, you know, Mexican voices. And uh, and, and so... Uh, I would not say that the cartoon is the cartoons are free of racism by any means, uh, but uh, you know Freeling did, did did show a sort of ability to think like more like a producer than any other Warner Brothers director, and that's not really a criticism of him, but it it just means that he's he's always thinking like what will what will be the most marketable as a series? What what is the I think what can we do with this character that is most likely to lead to a long-running series, and so he did not make very many cartoons outside of his few long-running series, like um, Bugs and Sa Bugs and Yosemite Sam and uh, Tweety and Sylvester, were a huge amount of his output because he, he didn't really have that much interest in uh, non-recurring characters. And the, Speedy, the way he dealt with Speedy sort of shows, you know, his his skill at, at gag timing and his. Um, and his skill at coming up with, uh, you know, a formula that would would be sustainable over many cartoons. Um, but, it, you know, it, it like every other director, it also shows, you know, some of his flaws when it's not as his best. And I don't think Speedy shows him at his very best. Uh, but uh, but he certainly did come up with a winning formula. And, you know, that takes a lot of skill and talent. Yeah, yeah. And th there's, you know, there's a lot of um love for this character uh even today and in my previous podcast i had a discussion about the the history of the character and and where he is now and everything and we got into um sort of the 
the inspirations behind that outfit, that iconic outfit, and the colors he wears, and uh, his catchphrase, and um, yeah, and uh, it's a very interesting character study. Definitely has notes of racism throughout, um, but I, I feel like as we progress, I think there are new ways to tackle him if they wanted to in the new shorts. Um, and uh, you know what? What Frizz Freeling gave us is definitely in a formula all to itself. Um, but it works. It still works. It's still funny. And as you said, it won an Oscar. So yeah. <laughs> it can't all be bad. But, uh, you know, that's not the end all be all of the best short, as you as you had correctly mentioned. Um, so in, in the 80s, uh, Chuck Jones, Bob Clampett and Tex Avery inspired a slew of Hollywood directors and talent uh, like Mel Brooks, Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante and George Lucas. Um, we know this as it's well documented uh, from interviews and um, I mean, Joe Dante has actually gone on to direct a Looney Tunes movie. Um, what did the influence of the old shorts lead to in the realm of film and 90s animation that made audiences stand up and become attentive to the classics again? Well, as I say, the, uh, I think the the clearest case uh, of Looney Tunes influence on a feature film, apart from Dante, who's almost like an honorary Looney Tunes director himself in, in things like Gremlins and especially Gremlins 2, but besides that, the clearest uh, I, um, Looney Tunes influence is Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles, which where Cleavon Little's character, the the black sheriff in the you know the racist western town, almost becomes Bugs Bunny, uh, literally becomes Bugs Bunny in one scene where he just does an old Bugs Bunny g- explosion gag and walks out to the Merry Melodies theme song. But it's also the uh, the way he d- gets out of his problems by trickery about by confusing people and playing on the stupidity of his uh, of the his opponents is very Bugs Bunny influenced and I think um for a lot of people who grew up with his cartoons uh Bugs Bunny is uh, sort of became um an example of how you could um have a character get out of trouble with using intelligence and wit and uh, and just uh, understanding the psychology of his opponents because Bugs, so much of what Bugs does is based on something like he does with Daffy, which is playing on his psychology and his his tendency to follow a pattern without thinking. So you can see some of Bugs Bunny probably in Indiana Jones or um, or other characters who are um, who live almost more by their wits than their strength. Uh, but and it's also that the style the chase style of uh you know of classic cartoon Looney Tunes cartoons um influences the ch- the way chase scenes were done in um in 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 some of the the movies that these people made so in Steven Spielberg's first uh theatrical feature the Sugarland Express which is about you know people on the run from uh you know across the country there's a clip from a Roadrunner cartoon as if to show, you know, they show a certain amount of kinship with a, a different kind of chase through the desert. And, um, and uh, I think that as uh, another thing that happened is that some of these um, um, film creators sort of became interested in meeting the people who had made the cartoons they loved when they were young. And uh, they started to take a certain amount of interest in you know, in, in reviving the characters. So I think the big, one of the biggest uh, moments in the history of, of reintroducing these cartoons to an adult audience, or at least making it okay for adults to admit they like them, was Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 1988. And of course, that was a Disney production, but Spielberg was the executive producer and he used his his clout with Warner Brothers to, to to convince them to loan out their characters to be used in the film, and making it the only time Mickey and 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 Bugs or Donald and Daffy ever appeared officially together in the same film, and that um, that was a very important moment. Not only because it led to things like Spielberg's uh, Tiny Toons, which was the um, a you know a, a, a TV show tribute to um, uh, to Looney Tunes uh, from you know, young, using young car- cartoon characters who sort of worship uh, the, the the Looney Tunes characters and learn from them how to do cartoon comedy, but it also um, um, became the uh, the moment where where 
where Looney Tunes cartoons were established as the ultimate in cartoon comedy, because the even though it's a Disney film, it's very clear that it's it's done in the Warner Brothers cartoon style. And when they think of when they're when Roger talks about the kind of gags that cartoon characters do, he is mostly not talking about Disney characters. It's Bugs, it's Daffy, it's uh, you know, it's so many of these other characters who uh, who solve their problems with violence and get. Um, and you know, play on the psychology of their opponents, and uh, and can only do something if it's funny. Can, they can do anything if it's funny, but not if, but only if it's funny. And and so that that movie really, I think, um, turned uh, the Looney Tunes franchise into something that was clearly not just for kids. And to some extent, it's remained that way ever since though partly just because there are fewer outlets for children to see them. It's such a, a magical like time capsule, that movie. And it's it's definitely left its mark. I I just want to thank Spielberg for, you know, as a kid from the 90s and growing up with the revitalized Looney Tunes on TV and the Bugs Bunny and Tweety show, like re-airing the, the shorts on ABC, uh, Tiny Tunes and Animaniacs, which have both been given a, a green light to be rebooted on Hulu. Animaniacs is already experiencing season two right now to much success and Tiny Toons University uh, a little bit later. Um, I, I just, you know, I love the fact that Spielberg had such a hand in bringing what we love about classic animation to a modern era. Yeah. And it's we're still seeing the effects of that today. Yeah. So that's, that's really special. And I... I love that film. I love Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, the Robert Zemeckis film. And I, I just, every time I revisit it, I, I, you know, my heart grows a little bit more like the Grinch <laughs> with, with the film. And yeah, it's just, it's so magical. Yeah. So in uh, the 90s, uh, keeping with that era, uh, we had Bugs Bunny return to the big screen in Space Jam, uh, the 1996 film. And Looney Tunes back in action in 2003. Um, why did putting the Looney Tunes back on the big screen irrevocably give the characters an inability to be themselves? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say it. I wouldn't really put it that way. I don't think uh, the, the the Looney Tunes characters are are not themselves in the Space Jam movies. It just it, it's just impossible for it to be a Looney Tunes uh, story that is satisfying because the the structure of these films is the um is the uh, is that the 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 stakes are real the 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 the, the, the plot yes. of the rich space jam to the extent there is a plot is that the looney tunes are doomed unless they play in this basketball game and defeat the bad guys and the whole the, the whole original um, franchise of Looney Tunes cartoons run on, runs on the idea that the stakes are extremely low. So, because so, if we actually believed the characters were getting hurt and that it hurt and that they were in pain or that they were dying, it would not be funny. So, uh, so the characters always act like getting hurt is you know getting run over by a car or something is just a minor humiliation. It's just like it, it's really just the pain of being outwitted more than it is the pain of being run over by a car. And so once you take, once you put them in this situation where they're actually afraid to die, or they're actually afraid of something uh, that, that that something genuinely bad is going to happen, then it kind of scrambles the stories you can tell with them because that's just so distant from what the characters were created to be. But that's that's always been the problem with a Looney Tunes feature with, uh, of any kind, which is that a feature has to have stakes, and um, and, and a six-minute cartoon does not. And so uh, there, there's always been that that problem that I think has stymied a lot of attempts to make a Looney Tunes feature film. Um, it's just like what what can you do with these characters when when their whole point in them is everything you can say about them you can say in six minutes. So you know <laughs> it, it, I don't really blame I don't envy any writer trying to you know figure out a solution to that. I, I've had my own ideas like my, my favorite. You know, can I just give my my fantasy idea for a Bugs yeah. Bunny feature would be the cartoon Eight Ball Bunny, where he's taking a penguin, a cute little penguin, and trying and trying to get him back to the South Pole, and it's just a, a series of vignettes that he does. Uh, you know, um, 
that he does on the way uh, back to the South Pole, like, you know, meeting the Humphrey Bogart character saying, pardon me, can you spare, a, 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 can you help out a fellow American who's down on his luck? And I thought that if you took, or, or, and if you took that, the basic premise of that cartoon and just made the vignettes longer, you could have a feature film. But, uh, but even then I know, you know, I'm still talking about a, seven, a six minute cartoon. So I'm, I could say that people might get really bored with that plot if you, if you stretch it out to 90 minutes. So uh, again, it, it's, it's a dilemma that I think might be solved someday, but hasn't been yet. Yeah. And speaking of, I'm very interested in seeing uh, what they do with the whole um, Roadrunner or the Wiley Coyote court movie <laughs> that they're, that they're working on. No, Wiley Coyote versus Acme. Yeah. Um, you know how the, that's, <laughs> that's its own debacle. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how they tackle that. Well, I mean, you know, it's based on sort of famous New Yorker piece, I think, you know, which is the, the yeah. coyote suing Acme for, you know, all their the bad products they've, uh, or, or the, at least he claims they're bad. They would claim that, that he just uses them wrong. But, uh, but you know, that, that was, it could, you know, could work because that, you know, the funny thing is like, it's not supposed to make sense that he's uh, that he can get anything that he wants from a from an acne catalog, but somehow can't buy food. Um, but uh, you know, if you sort of deconstruct that and and literalize it, it could be sort of you know unique and funny, or it could be it, it could be a slog. We'll see what happens. Yeah, he just got to sort out his priorities. You know, yeah. just Uber eat it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Most people would say he doesn't really care about eating the Roadrunner at this point. He just wants to catch him. I mean, it, it's just like he doesn't. He's not. He's not really hungry. He just. He just won't give up. Yeah, that's what I believe. Uh, he's very persistent. He's the embodiment of persistence. Yeah. <laughs> the current state of Looney Tunes and their new legacy of these characters for current and older fans has a lot to offer. Uh, from the new designs that harken back to the Bob Clampett uh, 1940s inspirations from Jim Soper uh, to the voice stylings of Eric Bauza, Bob Bergen, Jeff Bergman, and Candy Milo. Like, what is an important lesson the new creative teams have taken from their 40s and 50s counterparts that have been instrumental in their success currently on HBO Max, where you can watch all of these new shorts? And there's another batch of them coming out this month. I think you know one one thing that that's important is, as you say, that they just pick voice actors and stick with them. So uh, Eric Bauza has been there for a while now. Bob Bergen has been doing Porky for a very long time and has essentially made the character his own. And so there was a period where uh, um, Warner Brothers had a lot of trouble committing to actors for uh, uh, for the characters, and that's. Um, that's really a problem, uh, you, uh, especially when you're trying to replace someone as iconic as Mel Blanc. You have to get, you have to pick a voice so people can get used to it. And uh, and so um, I think uh, you know, using a cast of actors who are you know have been at it for a while, uh, I think really does help with the sa- the sound dimension of the cartoons, which is you know one thing I get into in the book is that even though this is these cartoons are a visual medium, the sound dimension is incredibly important. The, the timing of uh, the, the, the synchronization of sound with image is like the you know, almost where what drives so much of the comedy in these cartoons. And so you, the soundtracks have to be absolutely great to give the proper foundation. And, uh, you know, the, the originals had Carl Stalling on music, Mel Blanc on voices, Treg Brown on sound effects, and those three elements just made sure that every cartoon felt like a Warner Brothers cartoon, no matter what it was about or who was making it. And so I think the, you know, the, uh, the, you know, uh, being a, a little more less capricious about voice casting and more committed, I think is helping uh, the cartoons, just putting more money into the cartoons and trying to have them look as much like full animation as possible is, um, you know, is important because you, you just can't do this kind of cartoon without a substantial investment. And, um, and I think it, it also, I think just trying to get back to the character's roots, but not be too dogmatic about it. So there's, um, 
there's certainly elements of the old uh, the, the old school cartoon you know Bob Clampett approach in 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 the way the characters are handled though uh, but and but it's not you know it, it's it's not trying to um, do gross out gags or uh, you know or, or over the top gags all the time the Tweety cartoons are you know a bit more in the style of the Fris- Freeling cartoons Bugs is sort of in between you know his crazier you know his, his nastier or you know or tougher release phase and and sort of the later phase where he became more suave so it's this thing of i think you know uh they you can uh, the the looney tunes you know buff can see little bits of um of inspiration they take from various cartoons but they they take inspiration from i think the whole history of the 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 franchise instead of just picking one approach that is the, you know, is the, uh, is, is the only way to approach the characters and sticking with it. So, um, so I think that, uh, you know, when people watch these cartoons, they don't seem like they are, uh, you know, they sometimes may seem not quite right. Uh, you know, everyone has their idea of, you know, what works and what doesn't, but it doesn't feel like they're straining to be like, you know, the modern idea of, a particular cart- cartoon at a particular time they're just you know sort of it, it feels like watching watching uh the work of people who know a lot about the cartoons and want to share their knowledge with you and and have fun uh, doing it so i think that there's sort of that it feels kind of like a friendly atmosphere and, and something that, uh, that that they want you to enjoy and and not uh and not just trying to rip uh, rip off the 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 past or or, or reject it Yes, I yeah, and uh, Pete Browngard over there is doing a phenomenal job of show running that, and bringing his own authenticity to it, making it fresh and new, and allowing the voice set talent to do, you know, what they think these characters should sound like. And and Eric Bowes is really bringing his own um, yelling to the character, which we haven't heard for a while, from a while. Yeah, and uh, you know, Mel Mel used to do that too, right. um, but for whatever reason, it just got lost. <laughs> and then Eric brought it back. I mean, to some extent, you know, it, things get, you know, Mel Blanc by the end of his life, you know, could not do that kind of yelling anymore, which is why in Roger, in Roger Rabbit, he does most of the cartoon uh, Warner Brothers voices just before he died. But Joe, the late Joe Lasky did uh, Yosemite Sam at that point because Blank just couldn't do it. And, um, and, and so there was a sort of a general... Um, almost imperceptible watering down of the characters and even the way they were performed over the years. And then, uh, and then it just took a while for people to bring them back because the characters just got so fixated, so fixed uh, at a particular point and the Warner Brothers just didn't want them to be done another way. So just the, the idea of having Bugs scream loudly for no reason, which is a, which is a, a big part of his characterization for quite a long time. You know, just bringing it back seems a little bit revolutionary, but it's, you know, it, it's just there if you want to lo- lo- listen for it. Yeah. And I highly recommend watching those, uh, especially like, you know, we, we have an embarrassment of riches as Looney Tunes fans because we can go on HBO Max and we can look at the restored classics or we can look at this new series that's ongoing or we could look at a number of, you know, offshoots that happened the new looney tunes cartoons which started this formula that we have adapted into you know bringing in the 40s sensibilities into it um or the looney tunes show which was like a sitcom version um that kids you know that grew up with and and now they're endowed to um i i never really got into that version but there's a lot of fans for it and the you know the more the the more fans the better uh for these characters and you know they are malleable. They have the process and the ability to evolve and change. And you still find characteristics that you latch onto and you believe as that's, that's the character I grew up with. Like that's, you know, that's my Bugs Bunny. And I feel like that is such a tried and true lasting approach to creating an animated character, something that you find in yourself, something reflective. And I think that's what your book does so well is that it documents what we see in ourselves as yeah. long as, as well as what is there in the past and how we can use that to evolve into uh, people that admire animation in a whole new way. Yeah. 
I think that, you know, the, you know, the great thing about, you know, classic Looney Tunes is that they do not, they don't feel cynical. They're not, uh, you know, they, they're not being made to, it, 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 for the most part to, you know, cash in on trends, you know, they borrow from trends all the time, but they they really are, as the creators would often say, made, they made them for themselves. And, you know, then they went to the theaters and listened in to see if the what was working for them would work for the uh, audiences. But you can't make a good uh, cartoon with these characters if you're just trying to um, think of what the public w w will accept. You have to, you, you, you have, it has to start with the creator and, and then, and then it moves to what the, the, the audience finds in it that, that, that they can, they can connect with and laugh at. But uh, yeah, it's um, they, what, what can restore the characters as, you know, corporate money makers is if they're, you know, if they're not expected to be uh, corporate money makers, they, they, they have to be, you know, they, they have to be stuff that comes from, um, you know, uh, from a place of love and a place of, um, you know, of, of personal interest. And then that will, that will reach a large audience. Yes. Yes. And I hope your book reaches a large audience too. Um, it's called Anvils, Mallets, and Dynamite, the unauthorized biography of Looney Tunes. And it's in stores now uh, or on Amazon if you don't want to go to a, a brick and mortar. And um, definitely look up uh, Jamie Weinman's book. It is a really unique and fascinating perspective on the topic of Looney Tunes, on the history, and you present it in such a really interesting way that I felt compelled to keep reading and to follow along in this journey with you. And it was, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's one of my hobbies now in going into a Barnes and Noble or going into, you know, in any kind of a rundown bookstore and looking for Looney Tunes stuff. And I haven't found a really good book like this for a really long time. Um, I, I always go to the desk and ask, like, can you look up anything to do with like Mel Blanc or, you know, Chuck Jones and, and like, they don't carry those things in stores. And so the fact that your book came out this year, I feel is so, I get like kismet with, uh, you know, what I love about the shorts, what I love about the current franchise, uh, you go into the in-depth nitty gritty of, you know, the anatomy of a cartoon, which is awesome. And then also you bring in your own perspective on the business side of things, like how, you know, uh, Schlesinger and everybody were like um, running down the studio and then left the studio and the whole like selling of the IP to uh, syndication and, you know, all of that TV stuff. Um, it was really fascinating to, uh, to learn all that stuff and, and to bring that into my knowledge of this franchise and, you know, um, where it could go. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I just, I love the book and I highly recommend it. Uh, it's, it would make a wonderful Christmas present if you're out there looking for something for your Looney Tune friends or family. And, uh, yeah. So Jamie, thank you so much for being on the show with me today and talking about your wonderful work and, um, yeah, thank you for putting that out into the universe. Well, thank you very much for your kind words. And I'm really glad that people are enjoying it. And, and I think, you know, it's good to have a book out there that, that is, you know, for people who love the cartoons and want to learn more about them, but, but you know, aren't necess necessarily animation buffs or people who, you know, who can tell, you know, the one animator from another or, or it's just for, you know, just people who, who love the cartoons and enjoy them and would enjoy knowing a little more about them. Yeah. And I love your note section because your note section goes into even further detail of like your thought process. And um, one of my favorite notes, and I felt very seen by this was uh, you said, because of the pun names and the, the nature of, you know, making the, the title of a short uh, a comedy statement, if you will, as you're, you know, going to the theater in the forties and uh, you want to, you know, you're going to see a short before a feature. Um, they used all these pun names and the titles are hard to remember for me and because they have nothing to do with the plot of yeah. the cartoon we're about to watch. Yeah. So and, like, yeah. A Bugs Bunny cartoon, you know, a, 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 uh, you know, what, what, try to remember which one is hair tonic, which one is hair conditioned and which one is hair remover. You just can't, they have nothing to do with the plot. It's uh, it just like, 
they probably had a list of all the hare and rabbit and bunny titles they could think of and just randomly assigned them to any cartoon. So it's, yeah, it's, it, it uh, it's one of those things where it's probably best to say, well, remember the one where Bugs and Daffy do this. It's, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it, it, I'm, I'm fine with mentioning them that way. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so um, your book is out in stores now. Um, I highly recommend it. And uh, yeah, once again, Jamie, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, where can people find you online? Um, I, I'm, I'm on Facebook for now only, but, uh, you know, uh, people, uh, my, uh, I'm on LinkedIn and, you know, people can, can find, I have a website, a sort of a basic website at jamieweinman.com. So people can, can find some information about me there and, and get in touch with me. Awesome. Cool. Uh, well, you can follow the podcast on this means pod on Twitter and this means podcast on Facebook and Instagram. I uh, highly recommend following me over there because I've been posting a bunch of stuff about Six Flags. Uh, they started their holiday in the park um, yesterday. And so I have some pictures up of that uh, adventure over there, as well as the Fright Fest stuff that I did with Six Flags. And, uh, you know, seeing how Looney Tunes are incorporated into the park year round. And um, yeah, uh, there's also a new multiverses. Uh, it's a Warner Brothers animation, or Warner Brothers and their game department uh, have come together to create like a Super Smash Brothers style fighting game, uh, which is a uh, two player or multiplayer uh, mobile app game that's going to be free for everybody. And Bugs Bunny is in that. So we have that to look forward to uh, in the coming months. And there's just, there's so much to talk about. And I, I can't wait to divulge into even more Looney Tunes madness uh, that we're going to get in the coming months. So again, Jamie, thank you so much for being on. And with that being said, that's not all folks. Check back later for more content.